Hello and welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Catherine Haddon, today's podcast host. Simon Case, remember him? He was giving evidence in Parliament on the role of the Cabinet Secretary this week. Meanwhile, Angela Rayner, Labour's deputy leader, was here at the IFG just a few hours ago, giving a speech on how to restore standards and ethics in government. It's hard to find two more IFG-ish subjects, so we're going to take a look at what both Case and Rayner have been saying. And then we're going to explore whether it's time for a new voting system in this country, or rather what the knock-on implications would be if we got rid of first-past-the-post. Because it goes way further than just how people vote, we've got a new IFG paper out today on just that subject. We'll talk to its author. After that, we'll leave Westminster and check in on how power is devolved from Westminster and across England. Has the art of the devolution deal been mastered by the people delivering those deals? We're not so sure. Springsteen, Blur, Pulp, Beyonce. The big names have been hitting the London stages this summer, but the stellar lineup you want this weekend is all here on the IFG podcast. Alex Thomas, our programme director for civil service work, is mic'd up and ready to go. Hi, Alex. Hi, Kath. Yes, those of us of a certain generation have had lots of friends uh, watching Blur in particular over the last week or so. Yeah. Uh, and I'm delighted that we're joined today by Rachel Wearmouth, uh, the New Statesman's Deputy Political Editor. Hi, Rachel. How are you? Are you ready? Hello. Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Yes. Hi. Let's start with this morning's big IFG speech by Angela Rayner. Alex, you were here for it. What is Rayner trying to do? Uh, yeah, it was interesting. Definitely worth a watch. Uh, I think she, fundamentally, I think she's trying to position the Labour Party as strong on ethics. And the thing that sort of political message that seemed to come through most strongly for me was this not above the rules point. So uh, rather than getting you know too far into the detail of uh, the stuff that we're interested in, I think the thing that she will be hoping that voters take away from it is this, we, we are not above the rules. And those who've been in charge over the last uh, few administrations have um, broken them and have put themselves above the rules. I also think though politically she was quite careful to try not to create too many hostages to fortune. She acknowledged a few times that uh, in the past uh, Labour figures had been uh, uh, found to break the rules as well and she acknowledged that there would probably be cases in the future where where that happened. So uh, she's trying to kind of carve out that um, uh, that ethical territory without going full on Tony Blair, whiter than white, yeah. um, we're going to be perfect. And what she was talking about was uh, Labour's idea for a commission which would bring together different aspects of standards. She focused today particularly on a COBA, which is about appointments of people leaving government, uh, so what they can do after leaving government, and also the Prime Minister's advisor on ministerial interest, the person who investigates ministers. Uh, but she implied that it would be a bit broader than that, but she she also said that she didn't want to reinvent the wheel. How would the Commission work in practice? Did we get more of an insight into that? Yeah, we did a bit. I mean, uh, and great to say that it adopted quite a lot of things. We've been talking about the IFG, lots of things, the Committee on Standards of public life have been talking about the fundamental kind of principle around this this integrity and ethics commission uh, is to create a separation between those who are investigating and overseeing a system of ethics mm. and those who are subject to it and deciding uh, uh, on it so there would be this commission with a, a head presumably and a and staff who would be able to launch investigations who would be able to make recommendations uh, establish the facts you know, and crucially say what uh, the commission thinks should happen on the basis of those facts, and then that would go to the prime minister uh, through an ethics uh, uh, investigation. Again, important to say that Rayner was really clear that it was still for the prime minister ultimately to decide. 
these ethical questions. As you said, Kath, she also talked about um, ACOBA, the um, uh, body that regulates the um, uh, post work, uh, you know, post government work for ministers and civil servants. That would roll into this and be reformed, and there'd be much more stringent checks on uh, uh, on what ministers uh, and civil servants did after they uh, left office. Um, she also gave a hint, but was quite open actually to a further consultation on this. I think the Labour Party are likely to launch a consultation around um, whether other bodies might be um, wrapped into this, the the lobbying registrar, as they're called, uh, the uh, Civil Service Commission and these other kind of bodies that, that police um, ethics and standards in, uh, in the UK. Yeah. Rachel, what did you make of what Raina was talking about, what she's trying to do? Yeah, I thought um, I thought some of the the sanctions that the the commission would be able to recommend were quite strong, banning potential potentially banning uh, former ministers from like taking up a role in in lobbying for as much as five years is, is you know quite a jump from where we are now. Um, fines for ministers who break the rules would also it also seems to be quite a, a, a strong move as well. But I think um, one of the things that may, may strike a lot of lobbying reporters is that um, there has been in the past a lot of criticism. Of the fact that the ultimate arbiter of the of the ministerial code as it stands is that it's the prime minister, and um, Angela Rayner it seems to be seems to be saying that the, the 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 prime minister will still will still have a role in overseeing you know the code. So I think um, maybe that maybe there was an expectation more more of an expectation that 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 dynamic would change, but um, yeah. um, it, that's not been the case as it stands. Yeah, and I mean it's one of those things, isn't it? It's very easy to promise from opposition, but when you're in government, uh, do you really still want to give such power to an external body? Uh, one of the the guests in the room was uh, Peter Riddle, our former director, but also formerly uh, Public Appointments Commissioner, and he made the argument that. Uh, you know, is there a problem of unelected officials having too much power over politicians? Can you see MPs as a whole getting behind this kind of thing? I guess what the sort of question there would be: What's the alternative? Um, and, I, and I'm not I'm not sure there is one. I think the the, the, the you know the prime minister is the elected prime minister of the of the of the country. So I think you know the, I, I can understand why Angela Rayner would want to say that the prime minister would retain retain a role over the ministerial court. Um, but I think some of the proposals she's outlined is quite are, are quite strong. There seems to be quite broad support for them in the, in the Labour Party, not least because. You know, most of the lobbying scandals and most of the problems with the ministerial code have obviously been with with the government. So I think there's, I, I don't think there'll be opposition within the Labour Party as it stands. Yeah, and Rachel, the last time that Angela Rayner spoke here, uh, as she said, eighteen months ago, uh, cabinet a shadow cabinet reshuffle got underway. Um, it was a bit calmer this time, but I think you know there's still rumours around. Is a shadow cabinet reshuffle on the card soon? It's been the story that has been it been around Westminster for for the last six months. You know, there's been a sort of constant, imminent reshuffle happening. Um, I think my expectation is that if if there's going to be one, and it, and it very much seems like there is eventually going to be one, it would be taking place after after these by elections that are coming up for Uxbridge, Selby, and Selby and um, Somerton and Froome. So um, I think there probably will be one. How extensive that will be. Is is not not yet clear. Um, I don't think it'll be incredibly broad and taking you know being complete a complete overhaul. But just when you look at how I think it was a few months ago now that Rishi Sunak did a sort of reorder of, of Whitehall and the shadow cabinet as it stands doesn't quite match up with um, it isn't quite shadowing all of the roles that are happening in um, in government. So I think there'll be. Uh, 
a, a reshuffle, but perhaps a limited one. Yeah, and uh, we put out a report uh, a couple of months ago saying that it's important to think about forthcoming elections and making sure that shadows have a chance to actually get to know the brief if you are expecting them to take up the posts in government if you win the election. Alex, um, not to forget the government, the current government, the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, also promised to act on integrity. Has he done that? On process, yes, I think. He's he's launched investigations and um you know more or less he's acted on them but i think on signal no um uh, so uh, he you know he has he has followed the rules he has uh, uh you know taken decisions based on the rules but i think the problem with where rishi sunak is on this is that whether it was through his response to dominic raab's resignation or the way he's handled the recent boris johnson debates in parliament privileges committee is he's not sent out the signal that he's going to uh, act really strongly on this yeah well, speaking also of the government, let's go back to earlier in the week and look at Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, and his evidence session to Parliament. Alex, who was he speaking to and why, and what did you take away from it? Uh, he was speaking to PACAC, the Political and Constitutional Affairs uh, Committee, which is the committee that, that basically looks at the Cabinet Office, the Civil Service, uh, and scrutinises uh, the Cabinet Secretary, amongst um, others. Um, he was there. Uh, he hasn't appeared for quite a while. I'm not sure he enjoys these sessions very much. So he was there to give evidence principally about the Sue Gray uh, affair. And uh, they also touched on House of Lords uh, appointments and the Johnson uh, honours uh, list. It wasn't part of a kind of formal inquiry. It was a general uh, a general evidence session. The things I, I mean, the things I took away from it, firstly on you know, on Sue Gray, she's in the clear. Um, uh, Simon Case uh, endorsed uh, the ACOBA that we were talking about earlier. Their judgment that there hadn't been any inappropriate uh, activity. Um, uh, he was pretty clear there was no sanction on Sue Gray. So, but this was um, against what ministers themselves had said because ministers had said there was a prima facie case that she had broken the civil service code. So he was slightly contradicting them? So I, I think he was he was trying in, in classic civil service way to, to nuance the position. Um, he was clear that ministers uh, had signed off the uh, written ministerial statement that said that there'd been a prima facie breach. Um, I think he rested on the fact that um, it was clear that Sue Gray had had some contact from Keir Starmer and his office from October last year. Um, but he uh, he effectively said that despite that contact, she had not behaved inappropriately. And given that she was no longer a civil servant, there was no sanction on that anyway. And he slightly, you're right, fudged the question of whether there had been a breach of the code or not. But given that uh, the government you know, put out that there had been a breach, I think we can take that they uh, that, that, that they still think that, but but that there's no real further yeah. fallout from it. Uh, I mean, the, the second thing, uh, just quickly on Johnson and Honours, you made the point, I think, during the session, Kath, that um, the civil service is still in a right mess about how it talks about the, the Boris Johnson era of uh, ethical challenges. Uh, and there's a bit of a black hole there. I, they haven't worked out, really. They tried not to answer questions about uh, yeah. who'd been involved in the Johnson honours list, resting on kind of principle and precedent and saying they're not going to get uh, into individual uh, cases. So I think that's still a problem, both for Simon Case and, and, and more generally. And then final uh, quick point, I was actually most struck by what Simon Case said about the civil service generally. He was he was asked about the blob and some of these accusations that are flying around, and he was much more um, robust than I've ever heard him be before. You know, he said that calling the civil service and other public servants the blob was self-defeating cowardice. It was insulting, it was dehumanizing, it was totally unacceptable. 
would have been good to hear that a few years ago, perhaps. Um, but it was also nevertheless good that, that the cabinet secretary was out there, um, albeit treading quite a fine balance between being loyal to the government and ministers while putting down a marker around, uh, uh, around the civil service in his role as the head of that institution. Yeah, Rachel, I mean, he, Simon Case has come in for quite a lot of flack over his uh, time as cabinet secretary. Did he do a better job this time than previous outings? What's the mood like? I think that's right. I think if you're, if you're a civil servant kind of listening to um, his evidence yesterday, you would kind of feel more heartened. I think, you know, I think if you've got to take, take stock of some of the stories that um, we've seen over the last last few months, you know, for example, um, as, as Dominic Raab left office, there was a lot of, you know, pushback from, from certain allies of his very being very, very critical of, of the civil service saying, you know, they're all Labour activists and these kinds of things, which will be very frustrating for civil servants who can't answer back. Um, so I think when, you know, the, the UK's top Mandarin is um, called before a committee, he has to have some kind of response to, to those kind of headlines. And I think he's definitely been able to do that this time. And I think he's also kind of, as as um, as has just been said, that he has put down a kind of, marker there and talked more about this deterioration of 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 relations between officials and and politicians and he's trying to kind of stop that from stop the continuation of that happening which seems to have just been one of these things that has constantly been in the ether since the the brexit debate you know since um there's been this narrative that's developed that somehow the civil service has been in the way of ministers trying to implement their their program for government so I think I think probably a lot of people watching yesterday will, if they're certainly if they're a civil servant, will have felt um, will have felt better about his appearance. Yeah. Well, let's look forward now to a question that never really goes away, and that's the way we vote. There are fans of First Past the Post, and then there are people who think getting rid of it would completely rewire, possibly in a good way, how we do politics in this country. But has anyone actually spent enough time thinking about the knock-on implications of a new voting system? Well, yes, the IFG has, of course. And Jack Pannell, who has authored our new report, joins us now. Hi, Jack. Hi, Cap. So, Jack, first past the post, its defenders say it's the best way to lead to strong and stable government. Is that true? Start off with an easy question. Um, (laughs) I think historically, yes, that was the case. Because it's not a proportional system, it means that it can deliver big majority governments without winning a majority of votes and no single party has ever won an outright majority of the votes. I think in recent years, that has not been the case so much, just in terms of producing majorities. We had the coalition from 2010 to 2015, and then we had the minority government with a confidence and supply deal in 2017. We now have a majority government that has also not been strong and stable, so majority governments aren't always. Well, exactly. Because it is uh, producing a two-party system, you get these incredibly large, ideologically broad parties, which means there's a lot of sort of intra-party conflicts, and, and that can certainly also lead to less stable governments such as three prime ministers since the uh, last general election. And so what would be different if we got rid of it? So I think it's uh, the, the, the main thing to note and the main thing that we find in our report is that electoral reform can be unpredictable in a lot of different ways. I think the main thing to, uh, to highlight is that depending on how the system was designed, you would expect a lot more minority governments and a lot more, co- lot more coalition governments. So if you look at Ireland, which uses STV, or New Zealand, which uses AMS, 
it is very rare to have a majority government. When New Zealand had a majority government in their most recent election, it was seen as this major aberration. Um, so certainly you would expect to see more parties, you would expect to see more coalitions, and yeah. that would have big knock-on implications. Yeah. And read the report for understanding what single transferable votes and, was it alternative member? Additional member. Additional member. I never get all these right, uh, <laughs> what they all are. Um, so what are the implications of that? What are the areas that the report flags of which I should declare I am also a co-author? Excellent report. Yeah, you can tell me whether I summarise <laughs> it correctly. Um so I think what, what the report finds is that a lot of our political system is built around the assumptions of first past the post, especially the idea that elections will produce majority governments and clear results after elections. So uh, anyone that's sort of proposing first past uh, a change to a proportional representation system needs to think about these things, in particular questions around government formation. It's currently very reliant on convention. Uh, in an unclear election result, there are risks that the monarch could potentially be dragged into politics. So what systems would be needed to make that clearer? Forming governments could take a lot longer, and that's not really something that we're used to in our political culture. And then once you're in government, how do coalitions work? Should you be having programs for government? What are the trade-offs involved in that? It makes it more transparent for the public if you have a program for government, but it can make it tricky to change what the government is going to do as as situation changes. Questions around sort of who manages the relationship between different parties and what information is being shared. And then also in the House of Commons, it's very much built around the government and the opposition. So there needs to be thought going into what should happen if there's lots of more parties. Do you need to change who controls the timetable? How do you change who sits on select committees? So it's a very broad range of questions that really need to be thoroughly thought out because it's not just a case of it will change the results of elections. Yeah, Rachel, I mean, it's a fascinating topic to talk about, but we hear it bubbling under the surface a lot. But is electoral reform really likely to be a live issue for the next election? Um, I don't think it's likely to be a live issue for the next election. I think um, in terms of Labour politics internally, I think there's a big, big, big push for for Keir Starmer to adopt some kind of proportional representation system. Every, every signal that I get from um, anybody anybody around the shadow cabinet is that that is not likely to get through the party's um, governing body, the, the National Executive Committee. So it's, it's, it's highly unlikely that it will be in um, the Labour Party's manifesto when um, it, we go to the next election. Um, but I think um, you're absolutely right to say that it's, it continues to bubble underneath the surface um, in terms of the party that's you know the most likely to be the next government. Um, so I think it will continue to be a live debate for for some years to come. But I'm not sure it's necessarily something that voters will be deciding on at the next election, if you know what I mean. No, but it's probably going to continue to be a stick that's um, that the Conservative Party at least are trying to throw at Labour. That you know, especially if they if they it, manage to get more seats but not enough for a majority whether or not you know that would be a condition for the liberal democrats and and so forth so potentially yeah if we're if we're in if we're into the realms of 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 labor not having an an, an overall majority then i think that would be one of the areas where the lib dems would have would be would have a point of difference and that might be something they they ask for but i think it's probably also just worth pointing out that you know the Scottish Parliament operates on a single transferable for it's already operational in part, you know, PR is already being used in parts of the of the UK already. So it's um, it's not like it's it's terribly radical and an utterly foreign idea. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, indeed. We'll come on to where it works. Well, where voting works in other parts of the country in a bit. Um, Alex, I mean, the Liberal Democrats were previously in government and tried to do electoral reform then. Uh, you were a civil servant uh, at that time. Um, it's not easy, is it? No, it's not. I Yeah, for my sins, I worked on the uh, Parliamentary Voting System and Constituencies Act. Um, ugly title, but um, Parliamentary Council weren't happy with us. And yeah, there was a vote on uh, the alternative uh, voting system uh, that uh, lost by you know, a, a healthy, uh, healthy margin. Important to note just that on, on AV, that's not a proportional system. So we often kind of elide different voting systems and assume that electoral reform means that we'd have some uh, proportional style um, system. But I actually think the, the experiences that uh, another co-author of the report here, I should, um, uh, I should declare the experiences that I lent on um, thinking about how all of this would work in government was less trying to get the legislation or a referendum through and more both the coalition period from 2010 to 15 um, and the supply and confidence agreement that Theresa May signed with the DUP after 2017. One of the things that I, mean, I really enjoyed about um, working with all of you on, um, uh, on, on this paper was was thinking about how it how it does actually change the dynamics of government. If you assume, let's say it's a proportional system, and that that makes it more likely that you have either a coalition or a, a more kind of um, a different flavour of agreement uh, in, in parliament and a supply and confidence or similar uh, arrangement, what does that mean for who gets to see what information about government decision making? That was certainly one of the things in the supply and confidence agreement. Did the DUP have right of access to government papers? Mm. In the coalition period, it's been well documented that Lib Dems felt very under-supported, particularly at the start of the coalition, Nick Clegg, both in sort of his personal support in his office, but also structurally in, in government, was Cameron and number 10 getting one over on uh, the DPM's office uh, the whole time. Um, also dynamics uh, about you know, within the coalition, once uh, Cameron and Clegg and the two parties had agreed something, that was it then, it was it was locked down. That made it really hard to get stuff through parliaments to agree concessions, uh, or even to hash things out um, between different departments. So there are all these kind of dynamics that play out when you've got a differently constituted government that that before we jump into any electoral reform really do need to be thought through. Yeah, but also I think, I mean, one of the things that comes out from the reports is it, it shows up a lot of the things we rely on anyway, even with the current system. My bit that I was looking around around government formation was particularly around how much that relies on politicians behaving well if there's uncertainty. And, you know, Jack, as you say, it risks bringing the monarch into politics if they don't behave well. So even under the current system, there's still risks to the to the approach that we, we have. Uh, Jack, thanks for being with us. So let's move on from how power works at Westminster to discuss how power is given away from Westminster, because both Labour and the Conservatives still appear to be committed to the devolution agenda and more is on the way. But is it done well? Do people in Westminster and local government really understand devolution? Step forward, the IFG's Peter Horston, one of the authors of our new report, The Art of the Devolution Deal. Hi, Peter. Hi, Cass. So, Peter, first up, devolution. It's a good thing, and we're all for po- political parties promising more. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I think devolution can be a useful policy tool. We actually published a separate paper a few months ago looking at how devolution can help things like driving economic growth and addressing some of the regional inequalities that we have here in the UK. So it is welcome. And as you say, Kath, there is broad cross-party consensus on this now. But I think it's really important to get this right. And I suppose in the classic way that we look at things at the IFG, if you want to make devolution work, I think it's a question as as much of the how rather than the what. 
And where is it currently working well? Where is it not so much? Yeah, I think the best example you can look at is Greater Manchester, which is sort of widely held up and thought of as being the most effective of all the combined authorities. There's been a, you know, quite a long history of um, shared working between the local councils there. They have more mature institutions. And other places are catching up, like the West Midlands and, and Liverpool, and they're doing interesting things on skills and transport and that sort of stuff. I think in places where it's not worked well, you can look at perhaps Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, the west of England, where the boundaries are a bit messy. There's been disagreements between local leaders. And then Tees Valley, there's been quite high profile allegations around mismanagement, a general lack of scrutiny and so on. So I think kind of the main thing to look at is when you look at devolution across the country, it's not a silver bullet. And you know, the government, local leaders need to work hard to get it right. Yeah. And I mean, Rachel mentioned Manchester there. How this affects the politics of our country is really fascinating, isn't it? There's some big labour hitters in in local governments. It, it, that can be both a good thing and a, a bad thing for the the leaders of national parties. What is it like, do you think, for them, for Keir Starmer dealing with Andy Burnham? Um, well, I, I would actually um, not necessarily point to Andy Burnham at the moment, perhaps point to Sadiq Khan. Take, for example, um, the, the ultra-low emission zone policy, which... Um, um, and the Uxbridge by-election campaign currently unfolding. Um, you have the candidate, um, Danny Beals, the Labour candidate, um, writing to Sadiq Khan saying that um, he disagrees with his policy and it should be delayed. And then you have Sadiq Khan trying to implement it by August. So they're kind of at odds there. So I think politically it can get, get quite tricky. Um, I think one of the concerns that was just raised there was would be one that I would I would raise that... Um, the, the, there is a there is a lack of scrutiny when it comes to some combined authorities, and then you've seen that in Teesside particularly. Um, so I, I wonder if there's some scope, and it's something that political parties should look at in future to try and do something to help local media to enable them to scrutinise. Um, you know, you're having big portfolios being handed to just local politicians, and um, a lot of. Um, um, sometimes the local news environment's not as, as equipped as it as equipped as, equipped as well as it could be to scrutinise um, scrutinise some of those you know big authorities now. But yeah, it is very politically difficult, and sometimes it makes no sense when you have um, you know a Labour mayor of Manchester like Andy Andy Burnham being very very studs up when it comes to the Labour leader. And um, but I, I think that's some of that's down to the fact that um, um, the country is just not used to having big powerful local politicians. And understanding how they how they operate because we're moving out of a very different political environment and into a new one. Yeah, and Alex, I mean that complexity. It's also true of Whitehall, isn't it? As well, it, you know, it's usually known for being quite inwardly focused. Do you think it's ready for a step change in devolution? No, it's not yet. I think <laughs> would be the, be, be the answer, but it, but it could be. And I think it depends if you're talking about um, sort of devolution as part of the current program of levelling up. I think there are flaws with how Whitehall does things. It has a centralising impulse. It tends to um, look to itself rather than uh, outside. But actually, the fundamental problem with levelling up is a political objective. You know, how, what is this thing, uh, or is it a basket of competing things? Um, so the the main problem with that is is the objective setting rather than the machinery. Um, I do think, uh, particularly if Labour were going to come in with a, 
a fairly radical program of structural reform, Whitehall would need a pretty big shove to mm. make that happen. Um, but it could do it at the so the the impulse is to retain power and uh, and authority centrally. But as we saw, for example, with the the devolution to Scotland, Wales, and then Northern Ireland after 1997, with um, political impetus and clear leadership, Whitehall will respond. But it wouldn't do it on its own. It will need, uh, a, as I say, a pretty big shove. Yeah. And Peter, at the risk of disappearing deep into IFG specialist territory, uh, mayoral elections use different electoral systems. Are they working? Yeah, that's right. I think I talked about this the last time I was on the podcast, just after local elections. So you're right, the government have recently changed the voting system for all mayoral elections, um, both the combined authority and metro mayors like Andy Burnham, as well as the small number of directly elected council leaders we have in England, away from the supplementary vote system to first past the post um, as pair for general elections. I think it's fair to say, you know, the effect of that could be quite mixed. I think back in May, where it was used for the first time, it possibly did have a, an influence on, on a couple of outcomes. Actually, in our report, we said that, you know, I think the government really should think again about the question of the electoral system for mayors. The advantage of the SV system is that it can push candidates to appeal to a sort of broader range of voters, including voters from other parties. And certainly evidence we found showed that um, mayors are most effective when they reach out and work cross-party. Yeah, and um, back to the report as well, give us your top recommendations. I think the main thing I'd emphasise is that, you know, devolution and making devolution deals is that it's an art as much of a science and that's what we try to show in the title of a report the art of devolution deal not plagiarized i might say from a book by a certain (laughs) former american president um and i think by that i mean it was clear from our research and the people we spoke to is that there's not a sort of a simple institutional kind of solution to this of the kind we normally look for at the ifg but actually you know where it works and doesn't work actually often depends on more sort of intangible kind of factors like having an effective and responsible leadership, ensuring that local areas have a sort of sense and idea of, of the purpose of what they want to achieve with devolution. And because that doesn't really exist everywhere um, or uniformly across the country, I think that's why the success of devolution has been a bit mixed so yeah. far. Yeah. And Rachel, I mean, Labour and Lisa Landy in particular have talked a lot about furthering devolution. Keir Starmer at the the launch of the Gordon Brown Commission, which talked about further devolution, he was asked, you know, but when you get into power, are you really going to want to give up a lot of it? And he said yes. But do we believe that? Is there a, like, is it easier to promise this stuff in opposition and then actually deliver if you get into government? Every every time and on every policy, I think that's probably the case. But um. <laughs> um I think well, one of the, their approach is is kind of um, to sit to to begin negotiations where where an area wants it. So there has to be that energy and enthusiasm around um, getting more powers locally. So it's kind of it, it, it might be that it's delivered in a kind of piecemeal way rather than handing a big load of powers to not you know nominal bodies all at once. Um, so delivery will be complicated by by that anyway, I think. But um, I think, and perhaps rightly, um, it'll depend on the demand there is for, for powers in, in certain areas. Do, are there areas that simply don't want, you know, a new authority um, taking on a new level of, of government? So um, I'm not sure quite how you would approach devolution differently. And Peter, while we're talking mayors, there's some big elections next year. Yeah, that's right. There might be up to about 10 or so metro mayors facing election next May. So from 
big names like Andy Burnham, who, who Rachel mentioned as well as Andy Street, facing quite a close re-election contest in the West Midlands too. But there'll also be new mayors in areas like the East Midlands and North York and North Yorkshire. So I'm sure there'll be lots of interest and, and interesting races to look out for. Thanks, Peter. And as this is your last podcast with us before leaving the IFG, thank you for everything you've done for us. Thank you, Kath. That's very kind. I'll miss everyone at IFG, but I'll always be a regular listener, the no longer a contributor to the Inside Briefing podcast. Brilliant. That's it for today. Thank you for listening at home. And thank you to Alex Thomas, Jack Pannell, Peter Horston, and especially to Rachel Wearmouth. Thank you for being with us. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. And be sure to be like Peter, subscribe and give us a good review. We'll be tweeting from Twitter, threads or whatever new platforms are launched next week. Uh, check out our sister channel, IFG Events 2. You can find a recording of the full Angela Rayner event as well as Monday's speech by Attorney General Victoria Prentice. And then head to our website and read the Devo Deals report and our new paper on electoral reform. It's only a week to go until Parliament rises for the summer. But a week is, as we all know, a long time in politics. So have a nice, quiet, relaxing weekend before then. See you next week. Hold up. 